All right, so no way we can recap what we went on last time. So um, if you weren't here, you can go online, you can go to our app, and you can go and listen to uh, part one of our uh, introductory lesson uh, on this. And this is going to be the final portion, Lord willing, of the introduction to Revelation. And like I said last week, uh, this is going to be more information than exhortation. Uh, once again, I don't, I don't apologize for that. There's, we need to understand the background. We need to understand the debates. We need to understand all of the information that exists behind this. If we're going to get uh, clarity uh, from a book that there's just been so much confusion from. And some of the things we talked about last time were challenges uh, in reading and interpreting the book. We talked about the authorship, the Apostle John. This is kind of his prison epistle as he writes this uh, in exile on the island of Patmos. We talked about the setting of it, the persecution, the opposition that the church, the early church is facing there uh, in Asia Minor. Uh, we talked about the, the purpose of it. Uh, and the primary purpose of it is to resist worldly compromise spiritual complacency, and false teaching, and to be encouraged by the reality that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, triumphs over all things. And so we can be encouraged as a church, no matter what we face, uh, in light of that. And uh, the most important thing to remember is that Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's not meant to be some puzzle we're trying to figure out because nobody knows it and we've got to figure out some weird key, and we only know the, the true uh, interpretation of it. No, beloved, it's a, it's a picture book. A picture book which is constantly giving us pictures to show the triumph of King Jesus, the destruction of the wicked world system and Satan and evil and sin, and, and ultimately the vindication of the saints, of the church, that are pilgrims in this present evil age. And so as we read through the picture book, we, we cheer with the saints, we roar when the enemy's defeated, and we praise and glorify the triumphant Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so it's a, a picture book, not a puzzle book. And we talked about the genre. It's a unique book in that it's an apocalyptic, an intense form of prophecy. It's a prophetic work, and it's also an epistle. It's an actual letter written to the churches. We talked about the arguments regarding the dating. Was it written uh, during the reign of Domitian uh, in the 90s, uh, 95 to 96 AD? Or was it written under the emperor Nero uh, in the 60s, early 60s AD? Uh, we looked at the, the, the main arguments for both. Um, I argue that I think the, the comprehensive, cumulative weight of the evidence slightly leans towards a later date. But I wouldn't be surprised with either. If, you, if something came out tomorrow that showed us a first century manuscript from 63 AD, I'd say, okay, yeah, awesome, there it is. That's, that's the final uh, straw. But nevertheless, I think that ultimately a later date is more in line with the evidence. We talked about the interpretive views of Revelation. Uh, the preterist view that sees the large majority of the, the instructions of the vision and the prophecies having been fulfilled already. They have, they have been fulfilled either in the first century with the fall of Jerusalem or with the fall of Rome. The preterist view is that the book of Revelation is primarily a work of uh, basically a political narrative. It's a theological political narrative against apostate Israel and against the wicked Roman Empire. 
And so there's, it's all been fulfilled, though, except with the exception of chapters 21 and 22, which is the coming and consummation of the kingdom. Then we talked about futurism. Futurism ultimately sees all pretty much chapters 4 through 20 as being all future. It only refers to the last portions of human history. Really didn't have much relevance for any major portion of the church with the exception of uh, the last portion of the church. And there are some dispensational premillennialists or dispensational futurists who would say that chapters 4 through 20 of the book don't even pertain to the church. They only refer to uh, tribulation saints uh, and and Israel uh, during that period. The other is historicism. Historicism says that basically from chapter 4 to 20 is the picture of all of human history from the cross to the end. And every single event that we read has a one-for-one parallel or connection in history. So for instance, many of the historicists looked at the locust riding upon horses with tails of serpents in Revelation 9 as the, uh, the conquest of Islam. So many historicists had a one-for-one connection. This means that. Uh, that's a pretty, we saw that that's a pretty rare view, even though it was held by perhaps my favorite people in all of church history. Uh, nevertheless, it is, I think, faulty in many ways, uh, but is predominantly held today by Seventh-day, Advent, uh, Seventh-day Adventists. So many of the Adventists hold to a historical view, and I would argue that allows them to fit oftentimes their false prophecies. They can manipulate the history uh, in order to justify their uh, often false prophecies. The uh, fourth one was idealism, which basically uh, saw that Revelation is a picture, uh, a symbolic picture, of the cosmic conflict between good and evil, uh, between the forces of God and Satan, and that the book has repeating cycles where it is a constant cycle of the course, the character, and the consummation of the heavenly reign of King Jesus. And you're constantly seeing this cycle. However, in the just sheer idealistic view, there is no, none of the events have any specific historical relevance. It's just a large picture of the cosmic victory of Jesus Christ. It's an all-complete symbolic Book. There is no place where we can say, yes, this will happen within history. It's just simply symbolic of the victory of Christ. And then we looked at a final view, the view that I hold to, a view called eclecticism. Or, if you like the long title, redemptive historical modified idealism. So we just stick with eclecticism. It's a little bit easier. The idea behind eclecticism is that every single view has aspects of it that are correct. The preterist is right that we need to understand the way in which the early church was affected by the book. The way in which the early church would have clearly saw this is us and this is the current conflict we're going through. The futurist is right in that Revelation does clearly lay out the reality of the eschatological age, the end times, the consummation of this age and the return of Christ and the final judgment of wicked and the glorification of the saints. The historicist is right to see that Revelation does span from the first advent of Christ to the second advent in his consummation of his kingdom. 
And the idealistic is right in the sense that there are clear cycles that show the cosmic victory of Christ over all wickedness and evil. Yet all of them, if pressed to themselves and left to themselves, miss a large portion of the book. And so the eclectic approach, utilizing the reality that all of these have aspects but must be understood together rather than separate, uh, is the proper view. Well, with that quick, quick recap, and I, I just like I said, please go listen to it if you want to hear all of that in detail. We now get into our study tonight. I want to begin by just reading the first three verses again. We're not going to be expounding upon them. I just want to have them constantly in our mind as we prepare for our study. We read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we enter into our time of study, I want to begin by focusing on the structure of Revelation. How does this book uh, made up that's so different from so many of the other books of the New Testament. And I would argue every other book of the New Testament. And the first aspect is heavy symbolism. Heavy symbolism and the use of numbers. One of the things that I, I recommended and I highly recommend it still is read the book of Revelation, read it out loud, and read it lots and lots of times. Because you're going to see a lot of things that are just... Like, whoa, what's going on here? Lampstands, a lion, lamb, seven-headed dragon, beast, horses with human faces and scorpion tails. And there's a lot of symbolism there. And so right from the get-go of the symbolic nature, we can go, you can't read this book outright literally. No one is a full literalist for the book of Revelation. Even those who try to claim that they're a literalist, you can't make locust Apache helicopters. That's not literal interpretation. Everyone is looking at it in some sort of symbolic sense because the book is, it demands that we look at it symbolically with the amount of symbols utilized. And I would argue that the overwhelming majority of these symbols can be interpreted through the lens of the Old Testament, of what the Old Testament prof prophets utilized to help give their imagery. And when we look at that in light of the new covenant fulfillment of Jesus Christ, things become much clearer. We'll see that throughout our study. The second thing is the use of numbers, right? When you read through Revelation, there's the same numbers that just pop up over and over and over and over again. Most commentators agree really that there's four primary numbers that make up the, basically the fullness of the use of numbers in Revelation. The number three, the number four, the number seven, and twelve. And I'm going to add a fifth one, a thousand. Three, four, seven, twelve, a thousand. The number three, I would argue, is the most important number of all in Revelation. It's one that is, not, is often subtly hid. It's not out there like seven is. But it's the most important because it's the number of the triune God. 
It's often used in the context of worship. Holy, holy, holy. It's often used in the, when we get to the heavenly scenes around the throne where worthy is the Lamb is said three times. Threefold repetition of worship and revelation stands for the internal praise of the saints towards the triune God. It often represents the fact that it is indeed God who is behind the action. For instance, when we get to the great earthquake in the sections Revelation 17 through 19, the city, when the earthquake comes, the judgment comes, the city is broken into what? Three pieces. Picture of God's judgment, the triune God over it. In the very prologue here, we see this. We see a threefold reality. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words. Blessed are those who hear. And blessed are those who keep what is written in it. The threefold reality. Following full obedience to the triune God. The number four. The four is a number of completeness, but primarily referring to that which is universal or worldwide. For instance, we think of the number four as that of cosmic completeness. The earth's four corners. You'll see that a lot. The four winds. In Genesis 28, 14, we read that God gave Jacob a promise. You will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. When you see this number of four, it's universal, it's worldwide, it's global. And Revelation 4, 6, all created life is represented by four living creatures. In Revelation 5, 9, we read that by the blood of the Lamb, you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The fullness of God's gathered people. In Revelation 7.1, four angels stand at four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. Complete, universal, worldwide judgment. The number seven. Seven is the number of absolute completeness. Perfect completeness. We think of the seven days of creation. The consummation. Sixth creation, seventh, the day of rest. The Old Testament uses seven repeatedly for the numbers of completeness. And throughout the book of Revelation, it's clear. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, which are so numbered in order to underscore the completeness of God's worldwide judgment. They are cycles of the same thing progressively revealed. In the book, there are seven kings, seven spirits, seven eyes, seven thousand killed with an earthquake, seven angels, seven lampstands, seven plagues. Do you see the theme? These are not literal numbers to be read. They are describing the complete number meant to be destroyed or brought or saved within that concept. I would argue that seven is the most is the second most important number in the book of Revelation. Because that's what the book is all about. It's a book about completion and consummation. A book about complete judgment and complete victory. Complete glory and complete praise. And then there's the number 12. 12 is the number of God's people. 
refers to the number of God's people. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles over the church. 12 is the number. It denotes a completeness of the people of God. And when multiplied by 1,000, it it connotes and denotes vastness. The vastness of God's people. And so when we see a number like 144,000, I assure you, that's not a literal number of Jewish virgins who are missionaries throughout the world. It's not. It's 12, the fullness of all the Old Testament saints. 12, the fullness of all the New Testament saints. Together, 1,144,000. The fulfillment, complete number of all God's people saved. That's why when it says in Revelation 4, Behold, I saw 104, behold, I, I, I heard 144,000, but when I saw, what did he see? A number which no man could number. 12 times 12 times 1,000. There are 12 fruits in the tree of life in Revelation 22. There are a crown of 12 stars on the woman's head in Revelation 12. The 24 elders, 12 and 12, surrounding the throne. The new Jerusalem that comes from heaven has 12 foundations on whose of the 12 names of the apostles are written upon. See the numbers and how they, they provide clarity in the symbolism. And like I said, the number 1,000 is meant to signify vastness. You know, for us, because we just print money like it's nothing, like a trillion dollars, it's like, oh yeah, whatever. Back in the ancient world, 1,000 was the big number. 1,000 was a lot. And so 1,000 is a number of vastness, of supreme magnitude. What's interesting is we also see the way in which these numbers often work together. The name Christ appears seven times in the book of Revelation. The name Jesus, 14 times. The Lamb, 28 times. Seven, bringing the Lamb and God together. The seven times four appearances of this title underscore the universal scope of the Lamb's complete victory. The seven spirits are mentioned four times to signify the fullness of divine sovereignty which is sent out over all the earth, probably through the church's prophetic witness, which I believe is the reference to the two lampstands that go out as prophecies, prophetic witnesses to the nations. So here we see these numbers and symbols working together to give us clarity to what's being said, to not try and look at these as literal numbers to try and cipher a one-for-one connection in history, but to see them as a symbol of what God is doing. The second aspect of the structure that we need to be mindful of is Old Testament passages and themes. Like I said last week, one of the major interpretive issues with the book of Revelation is just a lack of literacy when it comes to the Old Testament, especially the prophetic portions. If you miss, the, uh, if you miss reading and understanding the Old Testament kingdom prophecies, you're going to have a really hard time understanding what John's trying to say Jesus has fulfilled. That's why I said last week, one of the best tips I can give you, spend less time on end times websites and more times in your Bible. Reading the Old Testament portions and seeing how they connect. John is giving us a clearer revelation through the lens of Jesus Christ of what was veiled for the Old Testament prophets. Revelation 
is the unfolding of that which was sealed in Old Testament prophecy. That's why when we read Daniel and Ezekiel, they were told that their prophecies needed to be sealed. But Revelation, it is completely open. No sealing of the book. And I would argue that the scroll in which the Lamb is able to undo is those Old Testament prophecies sealed that Christ becomes the only key by which we can properly interpret them. So Old Testament passages, these these Old Testament references come throughout all of the book, from the Pentateuch to the writings to the prophets. Like I said last week, if you took all of the other Old Testament references in every other 26 book of the New Testament, combine them, you will still not touch the amount of Old Testament allusions that is found in this one book of the New Testament. There are more Old Testament allusions, echoes, and quotations in the book of Revelation than all other 26 books of the New Testament combined. So if, you're, if, if you want to really grasp it, you've got to spend time in the Old Testament. And so, thirdly, what is another thing? Contrast, reversals, and counterfeits. These are things that you're going to see throughout your reading of the book. There are counterfeits, the lamb versus the beast. Or excuse me, contrast. The lamb versus the beast. Seven churches versus the city on seven hills. Referring to the worldly system. Two witnesses versus the false prophet. The harlot of Babylon versus the bride of Christ. These are the contrasts that you're going to see throughout the book. Reversals. Reversals is when you think something bad and tragic and horrific has happened, but then the opposite seems to come. For instance, when the, the two witnesses are, are killed in the streets of Revelation, you think it's over, it's done. But we're told that they were resurrected, brought back to life, showing the triumph over that. There's a reversal there. The, the slain lamb that you think is dead and done for is the one in which he was alive and reigning and ruling on the throne. These reversals. And lastly, the counterfeits. When we get to Revelation 13 especially, you're going to see the uh, untelling, the unfolding, what we call the unholy trinity. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. The wicked worldly system, political system, the beast, the wicked religious system of the world, the false prophet, and Satan who is over both of them. And so you have the unholy trinity. Satan is symbolic of the father, the the wicked creative force. The beast is the incarnation of Satan within the world system. The false prophet is he who seeks to lead people away. And that's against the Holy Spirit who guides people to truth. And so here you see that, that counterfeiting that Satan tries to do within the world. Number four, the number four issue is identifying structure. How should we read Revelation? Should we read it as strict chronology? From start to finish, this is just from beginning to end of how it's going to lay out, only referring to the last seven years of world history. Or do we see it as what I call progressive parallelism? parallelism? That is to say that within the book itself, There are repeating cycles telling the same story from a different perspective. That's why, for instance, you get three or four or five, six times where it's like Jesus just came back and destroyed everybody. So why are we why are we back to square one again? And then why did he do it again? And why did Babylon fall in Revelation 14 and then get destroyed again in Revelation 18? And I would argue it's because the book of Revelation is not meant to be read 
strictly chronologically, but rather as repeating cycles which lay out the course, character, and consummation of the high king of heaven's reign and consummation of his kingdom in glory. And I hope to show you that as we go through our study. To give you a couple of instances of this, we look at like Revelations 13, right? Why I think this progressive parallel approach is the best. If we go to Revelations 13 and we think of of the, the beast that's there, the preterist who sees everything as pertaining to the first century primarily will say Revelations 13 has to be referring to the emperor Nero. It bears the mark of his name, 666, which we know in the Hebrew gematria means Kaiser Nero. And so it has to be him. It can only be him. The futurists would say, no, that's referring to the, the man of lawlessness in the end, the Antichrist, which will come. The idealist, the eclectic, says it actually refers to both. It refers to the immediate fulfillment of the Roman Empire and the wicked world system. But it also refers to every single political face of Satan's fallen world system, whether it be Domitian, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, or the Ayatollah of Iran, anyone therein that is a face of Satan and a leading of an evil world system matches the beast, just as the man of lawlessness in the end will. So it is referring to the people of everywhere. And what makes this really clear to me that I think this is the right way to look at that is because when we look at the epistle of John, John actually writes that there are many antichrists already. Not just one. And so this allows for us, when we look at it for parallel sections, to say this is an unfolding of the entire church age happening at multiple cycles. And that's why when we read the book and it says, for these things will nearly come to pass, that's relevant to every part of the church throughout history. Because it's a picture of the relationship with the church and the world at every period of history, progressively getting worse, ultimately, to the end and the great battle where Christ will come and consummate his people and his kingdom once and for all. Some other things. Time and language and numbers reveal these cycles within the book. For instance, you're going to hear these numbers a lot. 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Oftentimes it'll be written written as time, time, time and a half a time. Three and a half. Now what does those all do? They all equal the same thing. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It's all referring to the same period. Yet they'll be utilized in different portions of the text. The time given for the war is the exact amount of time. The time given for the beast to blaspheme, the same amount of time. The time referring to the time which spans from the first and second advent Uh, All of this takes the same place. Now, this is where my argument comes in. I believe that that seventh week, the the, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period, that seven-day period of the final seventh week, refers to the picture, the final error of fulfillment. For instance, when you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, I believe the prince there is referring to Jesus. The Messiah is cut off in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. 
He is the one who makes a strong covenant and puts an end to sacrifice and offerings. Now, my futurist would say, no, that's a period when there's going to be an actual Antichrist who's going to come. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. They're going to stop their sacrifices in the temple, and that's going to happen. When the book of Hebrews makes it clear that at the cross of Calvary, Christ made the sacrificial system obsolete. He fulfilled it. So I believe that that's what happens here. And so the final three and a half year period that constantly is getting talked about in Revelation refers to the, the ascension of Christ till his return in consummating glory. The first three and a half pertaining to his fulfillment of the covenant. The final, the advancement of his kingdom. And that would ultimately lay out the full 70th week. Once again, I'll try to show that as we go through the book. Here we look at the structure. And what I'm going to do is next week I'll bring in um, all of these charts and some also some of the Old Testament kingdom prophecies as a study reference guide for you uh, as we move through the book and for your own personal study. But this is the way uh, in which the book ultimately lays out. If we wanted to kind of create a structural outline of the book. Chapter 1 is a vision of the high king. It lays out the prologue of the book, the greeting, and the account of John's vision of the glorified Jesus. We get our first glimpse of the high king, the central character of Revelation, who now currently reigns in heaven with the keys to death and Hades in his hand, we're told. And then that brings us to chapters 2 and 3, where we see the high king's messages to the seven churches. The high king is also the high prophet. He is the one who teaches, exhorts, and comforts not only those seven particular churches, but I will argue that those seven churches are representative of the universal church. They are representative of the universal church at all times in history. Each letter to each church consists of five parts. There's an opening self-description. There's words of commendation when possible. Words of reproof if necessary. Calls to repentance if necessary. And ultimate promises to the faithful and persevering saints in the church. And the reward is often, you will be in paradise. You will taste glory. You see this picture of them persevering to consummation. Chapters 4 and 5. This is perhaps my favorite portion of the book because it is the central interpretive key of the book. We all of a sudden shift from our view of the churches and what is so now we are in the throne room of heaven. And everything starts looking a whole lot different. Chapter 4 gives us the, and 5 gives us the investiture of the high king of heaven. Chapter 4 sets the stage, takes us into heaven, and it reveals the, ra- the radiant and majestic holiness of God. And as such, this is a problem for John. Because holy, amazing, powerful, mighty God and yet he is a guilty sinner. This is a scary place to be. Scary place to be. Every person stands as a guilty sinner before this radiant, glorious, holy God that has ever been born of woman, a woman except for one. And chapter 5 introduces us to the one. It brings that one forward and it gives us the triumph of the lion and lamb. Behold, I heard of one who was a lion. But when I looked, what did he see? 
one like a slain lamb. That's that contrast. That's that reversal. What, I, what he sees, or excuse me, what he hears compared to what he sees. He saw one that was like slain, who had seven horns and seven eyes, symbolizing his perfect authority, power, knowledge, and omnipresence. And to the great relief and joy of all, especially John, he is worthy to open the scroll. He is able to open the scroll. A picture of Jesus opening the era of fulfillment. The messianic age was open. And this affirms the sovereignty of Christ over salvation history. And then we get to chapter 6 through 20. And this lays out what is to come. This is what is everything that is being laid out before John in his revelatory vision. And the reason why I have all of these these parallel uh, portions underneath it is because I believe that these six portions underneath it are all parallel sections. They are apocalyptic cycles which define the course, character, and consummation of the high king's heavenly reign. And so 6 through 20 is made up of six parallel cycles. Chapter 6 and 7, you have the seven seals of judgment. And they outline issues and circumstances common to every age. The seven seals become the interpretive key for the rest of the book. Then you get to chapter 8 and 11, which is the seven trumpets, the last of which concludes with the last judgment and the coming of Christ and the symbolic consummation of Christ's eternal temple, which is picturing the full gathering and glorification of all his people. That's why in chapter 11, there's so much an emphasis on the measuring of the temple. Why? Because it is symbolic of the full measuring and gathering of the body of Christ, the fullness of of the temple of the living God, which is his people. That is the temple. Chapters 12 through 14. I I love this section because you go from 11 and you jump to 12 and you're like, whoa, scene change. Everything just happened here. What's going on? It's because once again, we've entered a new cycle from a new vantage point. This section gives us a very unique and different perspective of salvation history. Traversing the entire era of proclamation. It introduces us to the main antagonist for the battle of the ages, the dragon and the beast versus the male child, Christ and the woman, the church, which ends with the fall of Babylon and supplies important keys to a proper interpretation of Revelation 20, the most controversial chapter uh, in the book. And it once again provides another cycle from first to second advent of King Jesus. Then we get chapters 15 and 16, which are the seven bowl judgments, the fourth cycle of the high king of heaven's reign. Here we begin to see the growing progression towards the finality of judgment at the end of the age. And so here, what happens throughout the book of Revelation is these cycles are parallel, but they're progressively parallel. And what I mean by that is, as the book gets closer to the end, the judgments themselves become more severe. So in the beginning, you have a third of the heavens, a third of the oceans being wiped out and things like that. Yet as it progressively turns the end, you start seeing complete destruction, complete judgment. And that is pressing the saints forward to the end of the era, the end of the era of proclamation. Chapter 17 through 19, we see the fifth penultimate cycle. 
And it is devoted to the final destruction of all the dragon's helpers. The great harlot and Babylon. Well, you say, well, Babylon already failed. I know. It's another cycle. It's repeating the same story from a different perspective. Babylon falls in chapter 14 and chapter 18. It's a picture of the same final judgment and consummating glory of King Jesus and his triumph over evil. And then lastly, the most controversial, the one we're probably going to spend the most time on when we get to it, if we ever get to it, chapter 20, and the millennial reign of Jesus. I believe that chapter 20 outlines the sixth and final consummating cycle or recapitulation of the spiritual reign of the high king of heaven from first advent to second of advent. I believe we will see the binding of Satan at the cross. You will see the gathering of the flock from all the nations. You will see the resurrection of all when Christ returns, the final judgment of all the wicked, and the glorification of saints into all eternity. I believe Revelation 20 lays out all of that. It's especially important when we look at our cycles here in a little bit of the different aspects of eschatology. And then the final portion, the best portion, everyone's favorite portion of Revelation, the one portion I wish I could preach and just leave it at that, is the high king's completed kingdom. Sir, it serves to comfort the church by revealing the age or the world to come. The river of salvation history now empties into the oceans of the new heavens and earth. And that is the view where every tear is wiped away. Suffering, death, pain, all destroyed. Living in glory forever with our glorious God in heaven. Lastly, uh, as we focus just on our book, uh, study of Revelation, theological themes. Theological themes. First, the sovereignty of God. The book of Revelation is all about the reality that God is in absolute control. He's absolutely in control. The reason why he can see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning is because he controls it all. He controls it all. There's nothing that the enemy will do to thwart our sovereign God in heaven. So take heart, weary saints. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how frustrating times are, you can know with absolute certainty God is in control. Secondly, the victorious Lamb. Beloved, Jesus wins. Maybe you just needed to come here tonight to hear that. Jesus wins. He absolutely, 100%, KO, knockout, wins. He wins. He wins. The Lamb of God triumphs over all sin, sickness, Satan, suffering, and death. Three, Suffering and spiritual warfare. The reality of suffering and spiritual warfare. During this present evil age, beloved, we are pilgrims. And this place is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And as such, we are going to constantly go through suffering and spiritual warfare in this life. Now, for the most part, as the American church, we have been crippled by our comfort. And grown complacent as such. But nevertheless... There will be a time, and we will have to face up for our beliefs and likely suffer for it. But more than anything, spiritual warfare is going to be a, a, a constant reality for the saints this side of heaven. This side of heaven, we will always be in that battle, but 
Praise be to God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Fourthly, the perseverance of the true church. The true church of Jesus Christ will not fall away. It will press on. It will win. It will persevere to the end. Christ will not lose one of his sheep who belong to him by faith. We will persevere to the end. Five, we will see the futility of Satan, sin, and death. No matter how hard they try, they don't win. No matter how much Satan tries to throw a wrench in the plan, he just, it just comes back around to beat him. Sin doesn't win, and death doesn't win. All of them will be swallowed up in the lake of death in the end. Six, God's glory and His worship is central from beginning to end. No matter how difficult or frustrating times may be, there is never a time where it is okay to not worship God. He is always deserving of praise. Always deserving of glory. Always. It doesn't matter what you're going through, He is so worthy of praise. Six, or seven, the centrality of God's word in the believer's life. When the believers in the early church were suffering, God gave them a word. The word of God is the central comfort of the believer's life. When things are rough, when things are bad, God's given us a word. A word to, to, to lay our weary heads upon living water to, to nourish our famished hearts with bread to satisfy our growling souls. He gave them a word. The word of God is central in the believer's life, especially in times of persecution and suffering. That is the introduction to Revelation. But I want to real quickly, boy, the time is just going quick. Real quickly, I want to do something that I think is very important. And that is to just provide a framework for eschatology. And I'm going to call this a beginner's guide to eschatology. Eschatology simply means the study of last things. It's the study of last things. And there are two aspects of eschatology. There's personal eschatology, which addresses the question, what happens to people? What happens to us when we die and all is said and done? That is an age-old question of every single person. Everyone has a personal eschatology. Whether you think we just go to the ground, become dust and worm food, that's it. Or we go to heaven or go to hell or whatever. Everyone has a personal eschatology. What happens to me when I die and it's all said and done? The second aspect of eschatology we call cosmic eschatology. And this addresses the question of what will happen to all the cosmos, the universe, the worlds. What will happen at the end of the age? What is the end? Does the age, does the world, does the cosmos even have an end? Is it an eternal thing? Has it been here from eternity? Everyone has a cosmic eschatology. Everyone has a personal eschatology and everyone has a cosmic eschatology. Everybody thinks 
uh, has a knowledge of what they think happens to them when they die, and everyone thinks they have a knowledge of what's going to happen to the world. Many global warming people have a cosmic eschatology, right? Like this, we have these views. A revelation, what makes it so wonderful, is it provides answers to both of these. It addresses both of these eschatological questions. A personal eschatology, what happens to us when we die, and cosmic eschatology, what is the end of history? Is there an end of history? What is history itself? So I want to just give you a a biblical understanding. Because I I, I want you to come in here with a basic biblical understanding of these terms. Personal eschatology. What does the Bible teach about what happens to us? All humans who die prior to Christ's return, at the moment of death, their spirit separates from their body, which is either buried or cremated, and their spirit goes to one of only two possibilities. There's only two possibilities. Let me make it clear. There's only two places you can go when you die. There isn't a purgatory in the middle place, a middle area, intermediate state. There's one place. You either go to heaven, your spirit goes to heaven to be with Christ and the saints there, the triune God of heaven there, or you go to Hades. Now, the reason why I use that is because in the scriptures we see the word hell. But there are actually three different Greek words that are often behind the English translation of hell. There is Tartarus, which is where the prison, the spirits that are in prison, the demonic forces that have fallen and that God has bound into Tartarus there. We read about that in Jude. We read about that in 1 Peter. These these, uh, demonic beings that have been uh, bound until the day of judgment, they are in what is called Tartarus. All All of the people, all of the sinners, all of the people who die apart from Christ, they go to Hades. They go to this holding place, this hell place called Hades. This destination is fixed for all as it directly pertains to where you were in your relationship with Christ. You're either in Christ or you're against Him. There is no middle ground. You're either in Christ or you're against Him. You're in Christ or you're in Adam. You're in salvation or you're in sin. One goes to heaven if they've been born again, having their hearts changed, sin removed, and have been given the righteousness of Christ on the basis of God's grace alone, through the gift of faith alone, in Christ alone. John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8-9, 2 Corinthians 5.8. The saints in heaven are fully aware of their surroundings and are delighted by its manifold blessings, eagerly awaiting the Lord's return to earth at the end of the age, when He will consummate their redemption by physically raising them from the dead in new glorified resurrected bodies and create for them a brand new world where they will live with Him forever in glory. That is a biblical personal eschatology for all the saints. Those who remain outside of faith in Christ will enter Hades based upon their own sin, especially the sin of of suppressing the truth that God made known to them through nature, through the law, and supremely through the gospel, which is the sole provision of God for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. In Hades, the lost are in torment, being excluded from the presence of God, deprived of His ever-life-giving blessing, conscience of His abiding wrath, and subject to the pain of divine retribution, awaiting the anticipation of the final day of judgment when they will be raised from the dead, but rather than being raised to glory, they will be raised to judgment, and they will be cast both body and soul into the third word for hell, Gehenna. Gehenna is the lake of fire. 
And we read in the, in the Revelation that both death and Hades, where all of you are, will be cast into the lake of fire. So even the holding places currently, the temporary holding places of judgment, will be also thrown into the eternal lake of fire in Gehenna, which was prepared for the devil and the fallen angels. So that is some biblical personal eschatology. What about a biblical cosmic eschatology? Let me try to decipher this for you. I don't think it's too hard once you see it uh, and once I lay it out for you here. There are, at the very bottom, there are three ages of history. There was the age of innocence, which refers to the creation period. From the creation to the fall is called the age of innocence. Man was in a perfect place, perfectly innocent, upright with God, able to walk with Him in the garden. Upon the fall, in Genesis 3, ushered in the present evil age. The present evil age, which we are still a part of. And this age will extend from the fall all the way to the consummation of the kingdom. When Christ returns, has the final judgment, and creates the new heavens and new earth, which will usher in what we call the age to come, or the world to come. Three ages. Age of innocence, present evil age, age to come. Within those ages, there are different aspects that have happened. If you look at the very top now, there was what we call the eternal covenant, or the covenant of redemption. This was a covenant made between the Father and the Son, with the, the working agent of the Spirit being a part of them, who made a covenant that they would redeem a vast multitude of people, which no man can number, from every tribe, tongue, and nation for themselves, on the basis of the fact that man would fall. They planned this covenant plan, and then, at the fall, when we read of the fall, God gives a promise to Adam. From out of your seed, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent would bruise his heel, right? Right from the get-go, from that point forward, in that what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, that ushers in what we call the kingdom pictured or the kingdom of promise. The Old Testament, from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Malachi, lays out what we call the era of promise and preparation. It is typological. It is laying out the promise of a new covenant, a covenant of grace, where the Messiah, where Emmanuel, where God will be with His people. It's an era of promise. And those promises are most clearly laid out in subsequent covenants given to the people of Israel, beginning with Abraham, then Moses, then David. Each one of those covenants begins to make clearer and to provide a silhouette of the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the greater high priest than Moses who's going to come. And that entire area of Old Covenant is an era of promise and fulfillment. But the covenant is veiled. They can only see dimly at this point of who is going to come. And then we get to the Incarnation. The Incarnation comes, 
Christ lives the law perfectly. He comes in, he fulfills the fullness of the old covenant, goes to Calvary, dies for sin, ultimately is obedient to Christ. He has perfectly fulfilled the law. To Telestai, it's finished. The Father vindicates the Son by raising Him from the dead. Forty days later, He ascends to the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning, ushering in the new covenant age, the era of fulfillment. The covenant is no longer veiled. It has been fully unveiled. And it is seen, not with eyes, but with faith. That's what Hebrews 11, our study on Wednesday night, is going to be all about. The era of fulfillment, the covenant is seen through and experienced through faith. And this lays out what we call the kingdom of the Son, which we are, I believe, a part of right now. The era of fulfillment is happening. There is proclamation and there's probation. This is a time of proclamation. Christ is gathering His fold from all of the nations until that little letter there, P, the parousia, the coming of Jesus. The return of Jesus. When He will come, put an end to all wickedness, put an end to the present evil age, and usher in the world to come when He hands the kingdom over to His Father. That KOS, kingdom of the Son, is now handed to the KOF, kingdom of the Father. And this is the age to come where there is no evil, no pain, no suffering. It has all been dealt with by the Son. And this is where the covenant has been fully realized and we see it now by sight. No longer do we walk on the basis of faith, but we will live fullness on the basis of sight where we will walk face to face with the high king of heaven. This is a very, and I know it may seem difficult, but I promise this is a real simple laying out. Era of promise and preparation, Old Testament. Era of fulfillment, New Testament age. Onto the world to come when Christ returns in the glorious new heavens and new earth. And we will see what we now walk by faith looking forward to. And so this is a basic cosmic eschatology of just the sheer layout. This isn't getting into millennial positions or anything like that. Just a basic layout of how and the unfolding history is going to go. And what's important about this is to realize history is linear. Yes, there are constant repetitions of people within history. History repeats itself because we're all sinners doing the same stupid stuff. But history has a beginning and it's got an end. History is his story. From creation to consummation. There is a line that we are all progressing towards, and that's what I hope to see here in this guide. And like I said, I'll print these out and hand them out to you next week, and that'll make it a little bit easier. Some issues in biblical eschatology. What are some of the major issues that we have? There's really only four. There are only four, but they're big four. And that's what makes them hard, because they're an important four. One, there's a division over the nature and the coming of the kingdom. Is the kingdom a literal theocratic Israel? That is going to reign in Jerusalem on Jewish soil where King Jesus goes back to doing all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Or is it a symbolic new covenant kingdom that is fulfilled through the people of God who are, who are the antitype of all of those typological prof- prophecies 
in the Old Testament. There's a division. What does the kingdom look like? What's it going to be like? What is it made up of? Secondly, there, there's an issue over the proper interpretation of Old Testament kingdom prophecy. Should we see the Old Testament kingdom prophecy as absolutely literal, only can be understood in the way in which it was revealed to the prophets? Or do we reveal them spiritually, interpret them spiritually or figuratively through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Thirdly, there are differing views of the millennium. Premillennial, dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. By God's grace, we'll get there. And then lastly, arguments over the nature of kingdom consummation. How? What's it going to look like when Jesus comes back? Nobody in these camps argued that Jesus is going to come back. If you don't believe Jesus is going to come back, you're just not a Christian. So we can go ahead and make that easy. Everyone agrees Jesus is going to return. Very few people would agree on how he's going to return. Or what it's going to look like when he returns. And those are all of the major issues that come in biblical eschatology. And I would argue real quickly, let me just say this and caveat this. We can all have a disagreement on certain aspects of this within a given frame and be absolutely still in line and brothers in the faith. These are what we call secondary and tertiary issues. What's primary is that you believe that Jesus Christ will physically return from heaven in glory. That he will consummate his saints in glory. That he will judge wicked and evil finally and fully. And he will usher in a new heavens and new earth. That's the, that's the main things. Everything else, the minutia, we can agree to disagree on times. And it's important to remember when we think about these things. Some major eschatological positions. Not going to have time to defend them. Not going to have time to argue for mine. Not going to do any of that. Just going to try to give you a basic understanding of each of them so you have a framework to grasp on uh, when I use these terms uh, throughout our study. Or for you to just do further study on yourself. That's the best recommendation. The first, and I would argue the most common nowadays, even though it's fairly new to church history, only came around in the late 19th century, or excuse me, early to the late 19th century. There are some forerunners of it in the 18th century. But apart from that, no one in church history knew or, or, or understood history, uh, understood salvation history like this. But it is a predominant view in the West, especially in American evangelicalism, and it's called dispensational premillennialism. The argument there is there's creation, there's fall. Then there is the ascension of Christ. And he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to inaugurate the CA, the church age. Now, for the dispensationalist, the church is God's parentheses. It's God's plan B. God's main focus and plan was always just the nation of Israel. That's what the dispensationalist argues. That when the Old Testament prophets were looking through the valleys of salvation history, the church was down in the valley, and so they just missed it. So there are no Old Testament prophecies referring to the church according to the um, historic dispensationalists, though there is now what we call progressive dispensationalists who try to have their cake and eat it too. Um, so that those are like the John MacArthur's of the world who try to say, no, there is the church. It kind of shares the blessings of Israel, but it's not Israel, but they kind of are, but it's, it's just hard. So there's more stripes of dispensationalism are than there are people who are dispensationalists. So the idea is that the church ages begin. God 
uh, is doing something because he's mad at apostate Israel. So right now he's just chosen to focus on the church so that he could make sure that he indeed had a people for his son. That was the idea. The church is God's heavenly people. Israel is God's earthly people. That's what the dispensation believes. Then what will happen is near at the end of the church age, there will be a secret rapture. This is what every single four-year-old who was raised in a Southern Baptist church is scared to death of. That they're going to come home, see clothes on the ground, and mom and daddy's been taken, and you've been left behind. Tim LaHaye and the Jenkins brother, they were the keys to pushing behind the Left Behind series, popularizing this. Um, others uh, include uh, you know, just tons of people uh, throughout uh, history, uh, but there's... Lots of this has changed throughout time. But nevertheless, there's a secret rapture. The church is taken up, but nobody in the present evil age even realizes that millions of people are missing. They are secretly veiled by God from recognizing that this rapture has happened. And then this ushers in this, what we call, tribulation period. But for the first seven years, it's going to be really good. There will be a time of tribulation saints. Do they belong to the church? Do they belong to Israel? That's a good question. We don't know, but that's what there is. There is this idea for the first three and a half years, there's going to be the preaching of 144,000 Jewish witnesses. They will be preaching to the nations. Uh, there will be a great salvation. But then a leader will rise up. An antichrist will rise up. And this will usher in the final three and a half years of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. It will be worse. It will be horrible. There will be persecution. There will be an absolute massacre. But then... Christ will return kind of again then during the tribulation period and wipe out these horrible people, bind Satan, and then he's going to have a millennial reign. A millennial reign with Israel over for the next thousand years. That He's going to reign with them. It's going to be like King David all over again with Israel, except just greater because it's Jesus. Everybody is going to practically be believers because all the people who weren't believers were killed in the second coming of Jesus. But somehow, many of these people will go back to hating Jesus. And then Satan will be loosed and go and take all of these unbelievers that are at the end of the millennial age, bring a final battle of Armageddon against Christ, and Christ will then return a third time, but this time in glory and judgment. So you have three returns of Christ. He comes in judgment. He wipes them out and then finally ushers in the new heaven and earth and the world to come. This is by far the most complex of the eschatological positions. And this is the most basic of them. There are some that get way further and deeper than this. Then there is historic premillennialism. This was actually uh, one of the uh, uh, major views of the early church. And the major difference between this and dispensational premillennialism is that there are not two people of God. There's only one people of God. The Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are all saved on the basis of faith, whether in the promise to come Jesus or the promise that came Jesus, all the same object of faith. And so there's one people of God. And what will happen is Christ has ascended. He is now gathering his people, gathering his fold, but then there's going to be a great tribulation at the very end and Christ will return, destroy the enemy, but he will still establish a physical 1,000 year reign on earth. 
This will be his literal millennium where he will reign with the church uh, and with the uh, Israel, the believing Israel, who all are part of the same church. And they will reign for 1,000 years where Jesus will literally reign from Israel. Now, there are two forms of this. There are some who argue that he can reign anywhere. Uh, and then you have the Old Testament kingdom uh, millennialists who say, no, he's going to build a temple. He's going to reign in Israel. Um, they are going to be doing sacrifices, but they're not propitiatory. They're memorial sacrifices. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, they held to that view. Um, and so this is historic premillennial. At the end of the millennium, there's another great tribulation, the last battle of judgment there at Armageddon. Christ wins, does, uh, does the final judgment on the wickedness, glorifies the saints, and ushers in the world to come. Third view, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is was more of the minority view throughout history. Definitely the minority view of history, um, but definitely I would say has the loudest voices, especially today. Um, and so, minority view, even though it is getting further, uh, further growth. The postmillennialism is really a form of all millennialism, which we will look at here in a bit. Uh, but the idea is that the millennial age comes prior to Christ's return. It is not before uh, Christ's return is pre-millennial. He either comes before the millennium or post, he comes after. They argue that at the ascension, the church age was begun and that the church began to grow and grow. It's the old mustard seed analogy, right? It grows and grows, but at somewhere during the church age, there is a special binding of Satan. That's what the Revelation 24 and 5 refers to for the post-millennialism. There will be a special binding of Satan which will allow Christ to usher in a period of revival and salvation over the globe that will basically Christianize the whole world. Basically, the whole world will be Christianized. Now, I think this is wrong. But I hope it's true. So let me just make that clear. I'd love to see the whole world Christianized. So I'm hoping, I hope they're right. I just don't see how they can be uh, based upon Scripture. But anyways, there will be the millennial reign where Christ is spiritually reigning over this glorified age of the church. The practically all has become Christ, yet for some reason there will be a great tribulation once again at the end, but it will be small and limited. Christ will destroy that final bit of evil, ultimately ushering in the world to come. And so all of the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 65 and others, that talk about the periods of absolute perfect peace under the Messiah, pictures of glory, how all of the earth bows to Him. And just, the the post-millennialist looks at those texts and says, no, that's going to happen in this age. That's not referring to the new heavens and earth. It's referring to right here and right now. And that's where we're working towards as a people. And they would look at history and go, well, people would go, well, man, it, does, it looks like things are horrible and bad. Well, considering the fact the church began with 120 people in Jerusalem, it's doing pretty good. There's billions of people that have been saved in Christ. And so they would say what looks like losses is nothing in all reality been nothing but victory. And so they see ultimately the gospel triumphing into the nations, not in the sense of accomplishing its purposes primarily, but in saving 
the vast majority of civilization at one period in history. That will be the millennial period, and then Christ will come. This is what the Puritans believed. So when the Puritans came and established America, they believed specifically they were ushering in the millennial golden age uh, of history. And the final one, and this is where we'll close tonight, uh, is amillennialism. Amillennialism is the easiest of all of them. Christ came, lived, fulfilled everything, died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascends to heaven at the right hand of throne, ushering in the messianic age. Messianic age goes all the way. Christ is going to be preached. The gospel is going to go forth into every nation, every people group. He's going to save a people for every, uh, from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation to himself. Every single people group will have the gospel into it during this church age. The wheat and the tares grow up beside each other. There's going to be just as much wickedness as there is gospel success, just like we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Every time the gospel has success, it immediately gets opposition. We see this as both happening simultaneously. Over time, though, however, Christ will release Satan because he bound him at the cross. And the reason why they see this is because Revelation 24 and 5 says that the binding of Satan only bounds Satan from deceiving the nations. Christ begins plundering the nations, the Gentiles, for his kingdom. This will happen the entire church age. But at the last portion of history, Christ will release Satan. Satan will then take the wickedness of the world, raise up a persecution against his church, and then Christ will bolt out of heaven. And he will destroy the enemy once and for all and bring his bride into glory. And that's it. Christ came, raised, we're in the messianic age. Christ returns, destroys the enemy, and that's it. There isn't a, there isn't a left behind there isn't a second chance. That's it. There's this age and the age to come. And this is my belief here. And I believe this system aligns best with the teachings of Jesus, especially in the parables. The age and the age to come. When he talks about the imminency of repenting and believing right now, because when I come, there isn't a second chance. To me, this is the system that fits best. And I hope to make that clear throughout our teaching. I'm not going to make a case for tonight, but this is the position I hold. Uh, but once again, all of those, those positions are held by faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord that I've learned from and gained from. So if you're in, in any one of those camps tonight, praise God. If you don't know where you are, well, we'll just see where we are as we teach through it and uh, see where you come. But uh, that's the end of our lecture. Now let's pray. And uh, if you want to leave, you leave. If you want to stay and ask a couple questions, you can. Next week, finally, praise God, we will get in the text and start preaching through Revelation. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this time, so much information, so much to take in. Um, but God, we want to focus on the main things. And the main things is that you win, that we have hope in you, that you are worthy of praise, and that no matter what we face, no matter what happens, no matter what will come our way, we know that in you, we're taken care of. And we can keep our head high, no matter what comes our way. For the light momentary affliction we face is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So God, we thank you for the comfort your word gives us. I ask that you would be with everyone here. Bless their week. Keep them safe. Allow them to witness to your salvation and glory to those around them. And let your glory be revealed through their life and all that they do. God, we thank you and we praise you. And we say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.